book of Isaiah, chapter 37, verses 1 through 20.
Would you stand with us once again so that we can begin our program with opening prayer? George, may I ask you to lead us in prayer? We take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 377, 377 in the red, Trinity. Jesus, we're in the 
anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? And a reason why we'd like the hymn? Anyone? No one? Lots of faces. Oh, the piano player. Yes, sir. What number? The sands? It is five four six. Five four six in the red. Is that the one you want? All right, five hundred and forty six in the red. And the reason for this one besides the fact that no one else was raising their hand. Thank you. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 5 through 11. When you come to that, please stand with us. John chapter 15, 5 through 11. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my works abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Will you take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 92? 92 in the brown.
Our scripture text this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 5 and following. We have been looking at the claims of Jesus in which he states, I am the vine, and I have settled on the particular I am claim, this one, because Jesus goes on to say, you are the branches, verse 5. While the other I am claims we have been studying speaks of activity which people do, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. The emphasis is on the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep and they being the benefactors of his sacrifice. John 10, verse 14 and following. Or again, if you look at John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The main point is coming to Christ as the one who nourishes our souls. But in our text, we are seeing not only the emphasis of our Lord that he places upon himself as the vine, but upon God as the gardener, as he who works on the branches to make them productive with fruit, and upon us in terms of our responsibilities to become fruit-bearing branches. This is the last I am claim that Jesus makes, and it is as though he is saying that once we are in Christ through faith and repentance, there is a responsibility we have to bear fruit for God through Christ. Now that we know all of these things, what are we going to do with what we know about Christ and his salvation and our response. We began to look last time at the prerequisites for bearing fruit. Number one, the cleansing of justification. A person has to be born again. They have to be saved. They have to be regenerated. These are biblical terms. They need to be brought to life in soul for the work of the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit, as he makes us clean through the truth of God's word. Verse 3. So you can't do any work for God unless you're one of his children. Secondly, there's the cleansing of sanctification. Sanctification proceeds after justification. Sanctification is the ongoing pruning work of God by which he snips away the things of the flesh and the world which still corrupts our lives and makes us unproductive for God. And he uses the word of God and providential chastening to accomplish this. So cleansing is the first prerequisite for people to bear fruit for God. No one can do a good work acceptable to God without his work, God's work, 
which is of his own doing and of the Holy Spirit. So we come this morning then to consider not the vine part, but our part of abiding in the vine. That's John 15. This is the second prerequisite for bearing fruit for God. NIV uses the word remain. If you look down through the text, John 15, you will note how many times Jesus uses the word remain. Four times in verse 4. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. One time, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I am him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. One time in verse 6, If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Two times in verse 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. One time in verse 9, Now remain in my love. Two times in verse 10, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So remain, 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 remain. An awful lot of emphasis. Eleven times in six verses. I'm telling you, he's loading this text with his whole idea of abiding or remaining in him as we claim to be the people of God. The sheer frequency with which Jesus uses this term tells us that remaining in Christ is paramount. It is paramount to bearing fruit for God. Verse 4. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. One might think of this as rather obvious and therefore superfluous for Christ to state it. I mean, we all know, do we not, that a branch which has been cut from a tree ceases to have the life-giving sap run through it. The leaves will shrivel up. They'll drop off. Certainly nothing green will grow on it again, let alone fruit, if it is a fruit tree at all. Yet I have found that many things in the Christian life are rather obvious. That is, the logical outworking of certain irrefutable principles, but somehow somehow God's people don't always grasp the obvious. Part of it is we're so stubborn. Stubborn. We don't want to hear it. Or, that's the second point, we're so dull of hearing that God has to hammer it home as Jesus does in this text with his repeated call, remain, 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 remain in me. 
So I would like to examine a bit what is not meant by remaining in Christ the vine. The first being that Jesus is not saying that we, as branches, are to remain in Christ by our own strength and power. The term Jesus uses here in the Greek, meno, means not to depart, not to leave, hence to continue to be present, to persevere. Such constancy is possible only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this same word is used of the Holy Spirit in John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. That's this word in the Greek. Forever, the spirit of truth. And our text supports this concept in verse 4, in that a branch's ability to remain in the vine is possible only if the vine, and in particular the life of the vine, remains in the branch. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. This is true even in the natural realm, is it not? Branches remain on a tree because the life-giving sap is flowing through them. This is what keeps them alive. But it is also what keeps them attached to the tree. If for some reason the sap ceases to flow, the branch dies or is cut off in the pruning process. And if it is in the forest, the branch dies and then it rots away. Or it's broken off by some strong wind in a storm. Remaining in Christ, then, is not produced by our own ability and strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ who resides within us. Remaining in Christ, then, is not as some would say, a condition which men must fulfill before Christ will do his part. It's just the opposite. It's because of the Spirit of God, and he has invaded our life, of the true engrafted branches. That's why we remain. We have God's Spirit. It is an act of sovereign grace from start to finish. God is doing his work in us. We ask, why then are the branches charged in this text again and again? Now, the branches are being charged. Remain, 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 remain in the vine. There are some who see all the commands of Scripture as a genuine appeal to man's ability. The faulty logic goes something like this. God commands me to do certain things. If he commands me, it must mean that I have the ability to do it. 
Therefore, all of his commands I can obey. And it is further argued that God would not command us to do something which we cannot do. So, we look upon the commands of God as something tantamount to God's approval of our own effort in these matters. It's as though God is saying to us, you can do what I tell you if you know what it is that you're supposed to do. So we believe that God's commands are little more than him informing us of the duty of which we were previously ignorant. But now that we know his will, we can do it. It's like the young man who came to Jesus and asked, Matthew 19, verse 16, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? His question betrays his belief that he thought he could do good things. If only he knew what Christ wanted him to do. He was so uh, so full of self-confidence. He was saying something like this, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And so Jesus corrected his thoughts by telling him that there was only one who is good, and that's God. And then he told him to obey the commandments, outlining some of the most important and prominent of the Ten Commandments. And the young man claimed to have obeyed these. To which Jesus replied, Well, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. Come then and follow me. So here was a clear-cut command, was it not? He had asked Jesus, "What, what do I do? Believing all along that he could do whatever Jesus asked. But we read, when the young man heard this, that is what Jesus told him to do, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Matthew 19, verse 22. What was wrong here? Was the command of Christ too ambiguous? Was it too obscure? No. It was crystal clear. Crystal clear. The problem was that this man had not reckoned on dwelling, dealing with indwelling sin. In his case, the sin of covetousness. A violation of the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. He thought he could do what Jesus told him to do, but he had not counted on Jesus' command to touch him in the very area of his darling sin, 
That is, the love of things over obedience to God. Now, brethren, your sin may not be my sin. My sin may not be your sin. But all of us have some sin which keeps us from obeying the commands of God. This being the case, the commands of God do not come to us as an appeal to our ability. For we cannot obey. Rather, the commands of God appeal to our responsibility as disciples of Christ to live our lives in ways that are pure and God-honoring. The ability part comes through the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ flowing through us like the sap that goes up the trunk and through the branches. And so the charge of Christ to remain in him is a charge saying to us that we are responsible to employ those means ordained by God to remain in Christ. Let me give you this illustration. I think it'll help. In our homes, a young child may be responsible, responsible, notice my wording, he may be responsible for keeping his or her room neat and tidy with respect to toys and clothing and so on. But there are occasions when children get so much many toys out or they have so much clothing scattered all over the room that to put everything away in its proper place before bedtime taxes their ability. We know if we wait for them to put everything away, they'll be up to midnight and us along with them. And so we help them clean up their mess. The child is responsible for the cleanup, but he's not able. And because that is true, we do not hesitate to command him or her, Maria, clean up your room. This does not mean that we do not help Maria. Indeed, we often must help to provide the strength and the know-how. But the responsibility for the cleanup is Maria's no matter how much assistance she may receive to help her fulfill her duty. I believe this is often misunderstood in the spiritual realm. Christ here commands us, remain in him. But within the context, he repeatedly points out the sure failure of anyone to try to do this in their own strength. 
Verse 4, no branch can bear fruit by itself. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Verse 5, apart from me, you can do nada, nothing. So our Lord recognizes the fact that branches have no ability in themselves to live for God, to be fruitful for God, and he states this again and again. But, be that as it may, every true branch is responsible to live for God and to produce fruit pleasing to God, fruit bearing the whole idea of grafting and pruning, verse 2. So what our Lord is charging us to do here in remaining in him is to be submissive to the Spirit of God who indwells us. The Spirit is the life-giving sap that unites the branch to the vine and flows through the vine into us to equip us for the work God has called us to do. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 8 and following. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Notice the inability. Can not please. You, however, he goes on, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the vine, he does not belong to Christ. Pretty straightforward. But if Christ is in you, verse 5, if a man remains in me and I in him, your body is dead because of sin, but it's alive because of righteousness. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. I'm reading scripture. We have an obligation. Notice the responsibility. We have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That is, you will produce the fruit for God. So no way can Jesus be suggesting that remaining in him is something that can be produced by human nature and strength. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit empowering us to do what we are called to do, what we are responsible to do as true branches. Our sin is that we often think we are doing a rather admirable job remaining in Christ. I mean, these things we start to list. I'm coming to church, aren't I? That's remaining in Christ. And yet, brethren, religious people go to church 
every week who have no intimate union with Christ and no Holy Spirit of God in their lives, but their churchgoers. And it's evident by how mean-spirited they are, how full of jealousy or greed or hatred of others. I give my money to the church, one man told me. Yet thousands of the world try to appease God with their offerings of cash, which is much more painless than painless than offering themselves. It's more painless than repentance from sin and faith in Christ. It's the life-giving change in operation of the Holy Spirit. It's like throwing a bone to a dog while the person himself dines on steak. This was the rich man of whom we read earlier. He was willing to obey God as long as it didn't cost him a fortune. Now he had a fortune, but he didn't want it to cost him a fortune. God demands all of us to love him, what? I'm reading scripture. With all of our heart. All of our soul. All of our mind. Not just the crumbs we don't much care about anyway. Oh. That's a hard thing to swallow. We are not as admirable in our remaining in Christ as we think. Our sin has choked us and will snuff out our life altogether unless we repent and get right with God. Christ has to become more real to us than the person who runs to God only when they're hurting. Kind of like using God as Mr. Fix-It. We must love him for who and what he is, and not for what we expect him to do for us in our hour of crisis. That's not remaining in Christ. That's using Christ. Only he will not be used like. You will receive nothing, though you pray with great sincerity. Verse 4, the principle is remain in me, and I will remain in you. This cannot be a flash in the pan, as they say. Relationship. Well, I believed in Christ once. Or I trusted him for this particular thing. And then you go on and live the rest of your life irresponsibly and separated from Christ. Second, remaining in Christ is not only something we do or not do in our own strength and power, but it is also something God does not do to us apart from our 
involvement. Now that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? <laughs> Pastor, first you say we cannot remain in Christ in our own strength, and now you say that remaining in Christ necessitates our involvement. What I am addressing here is the truth that God never works on us or in us without we ourselves being conscious of our role and responsibility in the process. While it's true that we can do no good thing apart from the power of God, to will and to work within us for his good pleasure, Paul says, Philippians 2 verse 13, nonetheless, God does his work within us and with us, never apart from us. Never automatically, so to speak, in which we become nothing more than recipients and not intellectually and actively involved. There is a teaching abroad in our day which has as its slogan, well, once saved, always saved. Which by itself is a truth, sure enough. But when it's interpreted, when it's lived out in the lives of some of its advocates, it often becomes tantamount to little more than security for sin. Now, I'm not saying that this is all people who hold to the doctrine of eternal security. That is commonly referred to. I'm not saying they all use it as a malicious, a distorted way. But I am saying that many people have done that and they do do that. For many, the concept of salvation is focused upon a profession of faith. A person's verbal claim to be a Christian. Well, I asked forgiveness. Okay, then you're a Christian. Let a man or woman profess Christ as Savior. Let them be somewhat regular in church attendance and in their giving, and it matters little how he or she lives their life for the other six days of the week. He may be a blasphemer in God's name, a drunkard on payday, unfaithful to his wife, a father who provokes, provokes his children to anger, a cheat and a liar at work. He may be a hot-tempered man whose passions are out of control a good part of the time. He may be all these things and more and still be considered a saint of God simply because everyone heard him say so the day he walked the aisle of the church and prayed the sinner's prayer. But brethren, eternal security is never the entitlement of people who live in open sin, whose lives never change 
for the better? That would make God a bigger fool than us? Has not God predestined all of his disciples to become conformed to the image of his own beloved son, Jesus? Romans 8, verse 29, if you want the text. So if that is God's intent, is there anyone who can thwart the will of God? To say so would show our ignorance of God's omnipotence. None resist his will. Not even his people. By his spirit, God works in us to work on us and change us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. And in this world, the change might be gradual and incomplete, but it is real change nonetheless. And in the world to come, it will be perfect and comprehensive, total makeover. New creatures in Christ. So, to be living as a man or woman of the flesh is only to prove that you are a man or woman of the flesh. And you have not as yet been touched by the Spirit of God. In an earlier section in Romans chapter 8, which I did not read, Paul wrote this. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Verse 5. So here again we see that the believer's mind is engaged in the process of spiritual living and the security which that brings. God is not working magically on him as a person, nor independent of him as a person. His mind is thinking the thoughts of God concerning how to speak, how to live for God. But if your thought life is something else, if your thought life is on yourself, on what you want, or if your thought life utilizes the wisdom and philosophies of the world rather than the word of God as its base, you are thinking as a godless person. Because in heart, sad to say, you are a godless person. We must be candidly honest in facing all this that there is, in fact, people who are very simply religious. But they're not godly. And I'm not saying in all this that true Christians are free from fleshly desires and sin, but when a person's life does not change 
over the years from what it was before profession of faith in Christ, there is something disingenuous about the profession. Someone is fooling themselves, and it isn't God who is fooled at all. Self-deception works this way. By our religious actions, we trick ourselves into believing that these are the marks of true Christianity. This is not intentional. We just convince ourselves that a Christian is a person who does certain things. We have been taught proper Christian conduct as we grew up within the church, and so we know the score. The irony of it all is that what we know to be Christian conduct, namely church attendance, prayer, study of the scripture, financial stewardship, and so forth, it is a mark of the Christian conscience, but not by itself, not even primarily of this. God has a higher goal. What's the higher goal? It's in our text. Fruit that brings glory to himself. Verse 8. And so fruit can only be credited to God's work alone. A man can go to church regularly without knowing Christ. It's done every day. Well, at least every Sunday. But he cannot control his thought life regularly apart from remaining in Christ. He can give his money regularly without loving Christ. But he cannot love giving and love helping the work of the gospel without loving Christ. He can control his temper for the moment without remaining in Christ, but he cannot become a man devoid of anger and hatred and bitterness without remaining in Christ. He can abstain from a drink because it may be socially unacceptable or even detrimental to his well-being for the moment, but he cannot cease to be a drunkard unless he remains in Christ. He can say kind words. He can give helpful counsel to the bereaved or the hurting, but he cannot become kind of heart and gentle of spirit apart from remaining in Christ. What I'm talking about is real Holy Spirit change. I would say it this way, Christian actions, Christian actions by themselves are not all that difficult to imitate. They're not. But from God's point of view, he is after more in his people. He is out to actually change us into the kind of person whose Christian actions issue from a changed heart. 
So they were not play acting. If our Christian behavior is only an act, we're not remaining in Christ. For he works on us as we ourselves are involved in the process of change. This brings us then to the positive side of the coin. What is Jesus' meaning of his charge to remain in him? Remain in me. Some of you may have guessed correctly that he is talking about the truth of perseverance. Unlike the slogan used in our day, well, once saved, always saved as used in contemporary Christianity, the doctrine of perseverance teaches us that we as the people of Christ have a responsibility to live our lives in ways which please God. And that being the case, we know that sin does not please God. Duh. So I ask the question, what are the marks of a persevering man or woman? Going to persevere in the faith. What are the distinguishing marks of that kind of person? Well, number one, such a person takes seriously all the warnings of Scripture concerning self-examination, and then he or she will repent of any discovered sin that you discover. Paul wrote it this way, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 and 6. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Well, that's a... That's a revelation, isn't it? Examine ourselves? Have you as a professing Christian ever been troubled about your sin as a Christian? Have you been smitten in conscience, and rightly so, to the point where you thought, "Ah, boy, maybe I'm not saved. Gulp. If you are a persevering Christian, you will heed this warning and not dismiss your guilt by saying, ah, all my sins are under the blood. I've heard people say that. Don't you think that's rather cavalier? Talk to them about their attitude. Maybe there's something in their behavior that needs to be corrected. Oh, my sins are under the blood. In other words, I've taken care of that problem so I can live the way I want to live. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 4 and following, each one should test his own actions. 
then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load and don't be deceived. Whoa. He goes on. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Those who sow to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So this is a warning in Scripture which would scarcely be taken seriously in many churches, but the persevering Christian takes it very seriously. We know that without sowing unto God in the Spirit, there will be no eternal life. Our text, verse 10, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. It is our obedience which shows our remaining. Not just saying it, but there's some proof of it. And he goes on to say, if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away, and it withers. Such branches are picked up, they're thrown into the fire, and they're burned. Verse 6. Oh, sounds to me like Remaining is pretty serious. And brethren, there are many such warnings in Scripture, and we take them all seriously. We, re we view repentance of sin as something which is to be done more than one time in your lifetime. We know that it is in the very heeding of these warnings that the saints of God persevere and are safe, while those that take them lightly or dismiss them altogether are in danger of hell's fire. So I ask very seriously, which is true of you this morning? say, Pastor, do you, well, wait a minute, do you believe in assurance of salvation? Yeah. But biblically defined, assurance is the outgrowth of obedience. Obedience to God. And without the obedience, then your assurance is unfounded. It's a fantasy. It's a dream. And wishing doesn't make it so. Obedience does. And I'm not talking about perfection. No one is going to obey in this life perfectly. But we can do what's right, even if it's not done perfectly. Then finally, 
Those who persevere in the faith believe that it is possible to be accepted in the gatherings of men without ever being truly accepted by God. The account of Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts, chapter 8, is a case in point. He was baptized by Philip. He was accepted into the church of Samaria. But in short order, he was discovered to be nothing more than a religious charlatan plying his trade under the guise of being a Christian. And it took Peter's wisdom by the Holy Spirit to see through him. And Peter expelled him from the church and called him, let me read it for you, this man is captive to sin. Acts 8 verse 23. Now we Christians sin. We're no longer captive to sin. It's no longer that we have to sin. You just have to do it because that's your nature. That's what we were before God came to us by his spirit, but not what we are now. Don't have to sin. John speaks of those within the assembly of the church who left. And it's the way he words it. They went out from us, but uh, they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained. There's Jesus' word. Remain in the vine. They would have remained. What's that? That's no perseverance. John calls them antichrists. Possible to be accepted by fallible men and rejected by the all-knowing God. So I say to any here who have had a hot flash for Jesus, in days gone by, but now you're stone cold and indifferent to his teaching, I remind you of Jesus' own words concerning the stony ground hearer in the parable of the grounds. His words are this. The man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. Wow. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. 
Matthew 13, verse 20, 21. When I first became your pastor 40 years ago, most were very faithful to every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday prayer service, Sunday school. They were hungry for God's word. Where's that hunger now? More so than ever in these wicked days in which we live. When the world is sitting on a time bomb, an atom bomb, literally, that can destroy civilization. Is our spiritual life solidly fixed upon the rock? the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we living for him, loving him, growing in him? Or is it just a passing thing? I hope not, I pray not. Your eternal life depends upon it. Lord, we thank you for your word today and for its abiding nature. We're so used to excusing ourselves for our failures. That we, uh, we have a way of justifying the way we are. things that we do or don't do. For many, our goal is I uh, just uh, we just need to make it through another day and then another week and another month and perhaps another year. Something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but we just are hanging in there, hopefully on the right path. But dear Lord, you haven't promised us that paradise is going to show up down here on this earth while we're here. We don't have that kind of time to wait to get our act together. We must repent of our sin now. We must seek God's will. We must depend upon the Spirit of God to change us in mind and heart and soul so that we truly become witnesses for the gospel and to our friends and relatives and even to strangers of the love of Christ that's found in his cross work and in his resurrection. May that be the truth for our heart in this very difficult and dangerous day in which we live. You have not forsaken us. 
Okay. May we not then forsake you. Amen. I don't have a, another hymn. Do you have a hymn, Jared? In Trinity, in the red hymnal, 402. Appropriate hymn that goes along with the message, we are to abide, remain in Christ. Thank you. 
Lord, you told us the same thing in our text this morning, which we have studied from thy holy word, to remain in Christ, to abide in Christ. That's the same thing. Constancy, perseverance. Not just something that got us excited emotionally one day. Oh, got to sing some hymns. Oh, heard a good sermon. Oh, got to laugh. Got to joke. Oh, Lord, life is more than all of those things. And we live in difficult days. But our God is the creator and Lord of all. And you will abide that creator and Lord for all of eternity. And we count it a great privilege to be able to be part of your kingdom by your choice and your work in our heart, granting us faith and repentance to come to the gospel truth that we find in the holy word of God. We bless thee today. We thank you today. And we do pray for our country. We pray for the world. We pray for our country. We pray for its leadership. We pray for those that call the shots, that sit in their closed offices and decide what's going to happen. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would grant them your wisdom and a sense of sobriety, not quick to be on the gun, to bring out the bomb, but, Lord, to persevere for peace. Grant us the peace of knowing that come what may, if we're in Christ, we're safe. If we die, what happens? We go to be with the Lord. That's what happens. The unbeliever cannot say that. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your great work in our hearts. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the one that changes us and grants us the power to remain, remain, remain. Amen.